0: Um, I know it is uh, traditional at the start of a talk uh, on this subject uh, for the speaker to begin with uh, an anecdote about a kind of an offhand conversation that they had with someone and within the space of 45 minutes, the person they're speaking to becomes a Christian. And uh, We listen to this amazing talk and this amazing story and we kind of come away thinking, well, you know, on the rare occasions when I talk to someone who doesn't know Jesus yet about Jesus, they tend not to become Christians within 45 minutes. So in some ways, yes, I would love to be able to stand here this morning and tell you that, for example, when I am out and about with our four kids, I'd love to be able to tell you I'm always looking for opportunities to talk to people about Jesus, but it's not true. No, most of the time when I am out with our four children, I am absolutely petrified that I will lose one of my four children. (laughs) So, for example, I go down the swings on a Saturday and um, uh, the following day I'm planning on doing a sermon illustration at our church about how the invention of smartphones means that dads don't talk to their kids so much on Saturdays down the swings because, you know, they're on their phones rather than talking to their kids. When I arrive at the swings, there are three dads at the swings, and all three of them are on their phones. You know, there's a little Jimmy's at the top of the slide saying, Daddy, Daddy, look at me, look how high I am. And Daddy's like, yeah, whatever, you know, he's just sort of you know, on his on the internet, on his phone. And I think, oh, now not only can I do my sermon illustration, but now I can then say, it's so relevant, because only yesterday I went to the swings, there were three dads. They were all on their phones. And as I looked at these sort of lesser dads at the at the swings, I must admit I felt a sort of surge of self-righteousness as I considered how they, you know, weren't interacting with their children, whereas I was interacting with my children. They were absorbed in their virtual cyber worlds, whereas I was interacting with my children in the real world. And as I was thinking this, a little voice in my ear said, Daddy, Daddy. I turned around, it's my nine-year-old. He said, Dad, you've got to pay more attention. I said, what? She said, look at Emma. So, so I look at our two-year-old. I said, there's nothing wrong with her. And she said, Daddy, she's got something in her mouth. I said, Emma, you haven't got anything in your mouth, have you? Complete lockjaw, silence. I said, Emma, go eh, go eh. She goes, eh, cigarette butt. So I am so focused at the moment on trying to keep all four of our children alive that I'm not really talking to anyone, if I'm completely honest. So the best I can do as I come here this morning is to just tell you about three conversations that have happened in the three weeks when I was preparing this talk, and none of the people who I'm about to mention have so far become Christians. My wife sends me back to the swings, you'll be surprised to hear, despite this disaster, the different swings this time. But this time, to make it safer for our family, I'm only given charge of two of our four children. <laughs> and as I'm walking, I think, right, I've got I've got two hours with these two children, and we're going down the swings and we're going on the bus. And so on the bus, I'm thinking, okay, what does Julia do when she takes the kids to the swings? And I've seen her down the swings and she talks to the other parents. And I think to myself, what does she talk to the other parents about? I have absolutely no idea. So i think, well, that's obviously what I should be doing. And I think to myself, you know, if I can't be more like Jesus, I might as well try and be more like my wife. <laughs> so I'm on the bus thinking about this. And I think, right, what I'm going to do when we get to the swings, I will try and do small talk with the other parents. And um, if I can mention church... In the conversation without it like being awkward if I can bring it up naturally if I can drop it into conversation naturally without it being forced I will and so I go down the swings and actually I talk to four other adults at the swings of which two pick up on the word church and one of them says you know so tell me more about your church and so I ask them about why do you think people might come back And so we have a conversation about why do people, after their first visit, why do they come back? Is it the sense of community? Are people today looking for a sense of community? People are more and more busy, therefore they're looking for community. Or is there something about the message of Jesus that people find appealing and attractive? So we get into, what is it about the message of Jesus that people find appealing and attractive? following week, one of my neighbors called John, he knocks on my door and invites us to a party at his house. Now this wasn't completely out of the blue because three months previously, um, I'd invited five dads in who I know in our road to come uh, for a lad's curry night. And so I've invited them and I don't know that they know each other. I just know that I know them. And so I then think, well, my problem is that they work all the time and I can literally go for months without seeing these other blokes in my road. So how am I going to invite them? And I think, I haven't got their mobile numbers, I'll write them a note. So I've never done this before. So I write them a note saying, uh, dear so-and-so, I'm going with my next-door neighbour so-and-so for a curry. I'm inviting these five other dads are being invited. If you'd like to come, text me back on this number. All five text back and say Yes. So we have the curry night. Three months later, John, one of the five dads of the curry night, he invites us to his party. And at the party, I get talking to Simon. Simon is the friend of his next-door neighbor. So I'm chatting away to Simon. And I say the same thing. I drop church into conversation. And Simon says, oh, let's sit down. So he obviously wants to talk about it, and I wasn't ready. I wasn't expecting him to be interested. So I sit down. He's sitting there. He's like, and there's like silence, and like that's thing where I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to say. So he's looking at me. I'm looking at him, and I don't know what to say. And so, and so I just think, right, I just need to get some time. So I basically try and think of all the objections to Christianity that I can possibly think of, hoping that he will say something. So I say, well. Uh, Simon, um, lots of people wonder whether God exists at all. And some people think that maybe science has disproved the Bible. And some people say, how do we know anything about the historical Jesus? And some people say, well, you know, maybe we have got the Bible, but how do we know the Bible hasn't been changed? And how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? And what about other religions? And what, what about suffering? Hasn't suffering disproved the existence of a good God? And so I'm going through all these objections. And eventually one of them is, oh, let's talk about that. And then he just launches off. Remember, he was the one who wanted to talk. So he launches off with his view on this particular subject. And I have all this thinking time. And eventually, i kind of remember where I am and what I'm doing. And we had a really good conversation. And I just look back on that episode. And I think, you know, when you read this verse here in Acts 17, God determined the time set for them, the exact places where people should live. You know, strictly speaking, that was a divine appointment when I spoke to Simon. But then I thought to myself, what other kind of appointments are there? I mean, is God really up there in heaven thinking, oh my goodness, Holloway is talking to Simon about me. How could that ever have happened? That completely, I missed that completely. wasn't on my radar. No, obviously God knew. God knew and God brought us together. So all those things had to happen. I had to invite the five dads. John had to come to the curry night. John had to invite me back. Simon, Ben's friend from next door, has to be there. All of those things have to happen for me to talk to Simon. But the thing is that every year, Julia and I invite all the neighbors that we know in our road around our house. And when we do, I will say to Ben and Arabella, Hey, why don't you invite your friend Simon? And if Simon comes, I can invite him to church. Following week, I go to the opticians. And uh, I've not been to the opticians for years. And at the end of the appointment... He's kind of, we've had a little bit of banter, he's gone gone quite well. And he's away sort of rummaging with some papers. And at the opticians, there is an enormous poster, a diagram of the human eye on the wall. And I cannot fail but be impressed by this mechanism. I mean, you and I know any messing with any of the angles and this organ is not going to work. It has to be just as it is in order to be able to see anything. And then I think to myself, I could say to the optician, I could say to the optician, I could say, can I ask your opinion, do you think that out of literally nothing, that time plus chance plus billions of years by entirely natural processes could have produced this astonishing mechanism? But then of course, because I'm British, I thought, I can't possibly say that. (laughs) <laughs> that would just be too bizarre, you know, We're having the appointment. If I suddenly say that, he's going to think that's really weird. I'm going to feel weird saying it. He's going to think it's weird. I can't possibly say that. would be too strange. But then just as I was about to give up, I thought, what is the worst thing that could happen here? It is the end of the appointment. He's undoubtedly got another appointment coming. So he could very easily say, oh, he can park my question and say, you know, that's a very interesting question, but actually I've got somebody else coming, I've got somebody else waiting, so, you know, we'll have to talk about that some other time. He can easily park my question. And so I decide I will ask him. And so I ask him the question and he replies, oh, he says, it's funny you should ask. I said, why is that? He said, well, since I've qualified, he says, over the 10 years that I have been working as an optician, I have become convinced... That the human eye must have been designed by an intelligent designer. And I say, and who do you think the intelligent designer is? And he said, oh, he said, I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) So we then had a very good conversation about whether the intelligent designer could possibly be the God of the Bible. And because we're all, I mean, this conversation, the opposition is in Boots, and because we're always going down to Boots in Putney, next time I'm down Boots, I could very easily, if I see him, I could offer him an invitation to church. And so, I think on all three occasions, I was fishing. Fishing for men. Jesus' invitation to us is, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. So this is a personal journey that Jesus Christ wants to take you and me on. Come follow me. And what's going to happen as you're following me is I'm going to make you a fisher of men. So this is a good thing for us. Remember, Jesus, he's on our side. He loves us. Remember, he's already proved that he loved us when he died on the cross. So when he says this, he's on our side. We have nothing to fear. So I'll finish at the very end by giving you Six practical, manageable, realistic things that you could do in the four weeks between now and when we meet together in November uh, for the, the, this event, The Way Home. Okay, I want to talk uh, this morning about something which you might not have heard a sermon about before. Um Often we hear talks about why Christians must do evangelism or why Christians should do evangelism. Today, I want to ask a different question. I want to ask, are there any benefits for us? What are the advantages for me of living a life? What are the advantages for you of living a life that is directed towards unconvinced people? Now, let me just explain this rather unusual approach. Um, We don't tell others the good news about Jesus for our benefit. Uh, when it comes to obeying Christ's commands, we obey Christ's commands because Christ is the king. So what I get out of it is really neither here nor there. Any pleasures for me, they're secondary considerations. But today, just for the next few minutes, I want to talk about those incidental fringe benefits to us. I've never done a talk on this subject before, so here we go. The more you focus on non-believing people, five things. Number one, there'll be more joy in your life. On Wednesday we had a leaders meeting at our church and um, Heather Fryer was there. And it reminded me that she has uh, friends who are two sisters called Anna and Sarah Williams. And Heather befriended Anna and Sarah, this is two or three years ago, and started praying for them. Neither of these two girls at this point were, uh, they, they didn't go to our church, they didn't go to any church. They weren't Christians. And Heather says to Sarah... Sarah, you know I'm a Christian. You know that's a really important part of my life. You could come along to my church with me sometime if you wanted to. Totally up to you. I was just thinking, the first time I ever went to this church, I really enjoyed my first ever visit. You might enjoy it too. Now, Sarah Williams gets this invitation. Just so happens, she's a lawyer. And the following day, her job involves her taking the papers for a trial to the courthouse. That's her role. And because this is a bit of a pressure job, she knows that the trial cannot start until she's given the papers to the barrister. So it's a simple responsibility, but it's also quite high pressure. So she sets her alarms mega early. She sets two alarms. She arranges for her friend to phone her just in case her two alarms fail. Okay. And Everything, she gets up on time, she gets to the bus, and we've all had days like this. You get to the bus stop, and just everything that could possibly go wrong, does go wrong. There's some waterworks or maintenance, that means there are no buses running at all. So she has a long walk to the train station, all this time she's getting later and later and later. When she gets to the tubes, the, the trains aren't running, so then th- 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 she has to go to a different t- train station. When she finally gets to the right place, she's still got a whole tube journey to go from this station to the next, And she's on the platform and she knows that there's probably no way she can now get to the courthouse on time. So she is completely stuck. And we've all had days like this where you just sort of panic. Now in this situation, she thinks to herself, there's hundreds of people on the tube platform all trying to get onto the same tubes because the tubes are up the spout. And she thinks, right, what would my Christian friend Heather Fryer do at this moment? And she thinks Heather Fryer would pray to God. Sarah has never prayed to God in the whole of her adult life. So she just, on the tube, she's standing there with the papers in her case, and she closes her eyes, and she prays to God, and she says, in her mind, she says, Dear God, if you are real, and if Heather is right, and you know, you, you, if Heather is right about you, you must surely know, God, that I am standing on this platform now, and you must surely know what, I'm, what spot I'm in, and that I've really got a problem here. So if you're real, God, Please get me out of this problem. In in, 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 Amen, she prays. At this moment, she opens her eyes and she looks to her right. And the man who is standing right next to her is the barrister who she's supposed to give the papers to. (laughs) Like in the prayer. (laughs) Like prayer to invisible God and a real person. It's like, wow. So she just gives him. And he actually says, you know, that's fantastic because now I can look at them on the train. I can sort of gem myself up before I get there. That's absolutely ideal. Thank you so much, he says. So she doesn't need to go to the courthouse. She's done her job. She can go back to the office. And so he gets on the train and all the other people get on the train. She's just standing there on the platform. And of course she thinks to herself, what are the chances? What are the chances out of all the places in the whole of the southeast of England where this barrister could live? He doesn't have to come on this train. He could come on any train. There's all kinds of different ways he might have got here. And also, what are the chances that of all the hundreds of people on this platform, even if he did come to the same station as me, what are the chances he'd be standing next to me at the moment when I pray for the first time in my adult life about a specific thing? And there's the answer. And so you won't be surprised to hear she said yes to Heather's invitation to come to church. She did come to church. She and her sister both became Christians, and they've been part of our church ever since. And so... I thought I'd ask Heather how she felt about this amazing thing whereby she'd been reaching out to these two sisters and both of them had become Christians. We did it at a little leaders meeting. And her answer was so interesting that because it was recorded, I actually wrote it down. And she said this. Heather said, The more I prayed for Sarah to know Christ, I found myself thinking about how amazing it would be for Sarah to have eternal life. And praying regularly for Sarah brought the wonder of my own salvation front and center in a new way. Heather said, focusing on lost people has reminded me that all my own problems are in the context of me being guaranteed certain of a place in heaven. Heather said, I found it hard to stay offended and stay upset about things when I'm continually having my mind flooded with the fact that I'm going to be spending most of my time in heaven. Heather said, thinking evangelistically has built in my mind a mountain of gratitude for my own salvation. And then she said this, it's hard for the seeds of bitterness and disappointment to take root in a thankful heart. Colossians 1.27 says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. And this is an exciting, empowering verse because it shows how much God is with you. How much God through Christ is in you. And we say, yeah, but I'm not good enough. But it doesn't matter anymore. Because Christ in you is good enough. Can you see how much God is with you? How much God through Christ is in you? So you are the kingdom of God. When your alarm goes off tomorrow morning, When you hit the shower, Christ in you is up. And the kingdom of darkness is not happy. The devil would be delighted if you didn't go to work. The devil would be delighted if there were no Christians in the media, no Christians in healthcare, no Christians in local government, no Christians in business. The devil would be delighted if all Christians lived in cozy Christian ghettos. because Why would the devil be delighted? Because the devil knows that in John 17, Jesus didn't pray, oh God, get these nice Christians out of the nasty world. No, Jesus prayed, keep the nice Christians in the nasty world. Because you are the kingdom of God. Wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you are working now, God is working. When you enter your workplace tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, Christ in you arrives. And the kingdom of darkness isn't happy. Jesus is going to work in Sheffield tomorrow through you. So that's the first benefit. Second benefit, you'll live with the greatest sense of your value, dignity and purpose. One of our children uh, came home from school with an invitation to a multicultural uh, fundraising event in the school hall. And at this event, I get talking to a man who is wearing a Mexican hat, a Hawaiian shirt, and a grass skirt. <laughs> I have no idea why, oh yeah, because it was a multicultural evening. And I ask him about, you know, do you have children in the school? He says, yes, it turns out our daughters know each other. And then I say, so, where are you from originally, I say. He says, oh, Iraq. So we then have a brief conversation about recent events in Iraq. And then there follows an hour of multicultural dancing. And then at the end of the hour of multicultural, I see him again. And this time, I say to him, again, not talking about Iraq. I say, would you say that everyone in Iraq is a Muslim? And he says, He starts beckoning me over for sort of like a, a secret conversation. And so I, I sort of follow him. And so we go over to the bar. And we, he, he gets the bar. He, this, is, this is what he does. He leans on the bar. He looks both ways. He checks that the coast is clear. And he says, I have completely rejected Islam. He says. So I lean on the bar. I check that the coast is clear. I look both ways. And I say, so have I. He says, no way. I said, yeah, for real. He says, that's an amazing coincidence. He says, yeah, it is. He said, well, well, we've got to talk about it. He says, yeah, we have. He said, well, what are you doing on Saturday? I said, I don't know. He said, well, why don't you come, out? come over to our house? My wife, Mira, and I, we will cook you and your family a full Kurdistani dinner. Come over at half past three. We can have dinner. We can talk about it. It'll be fantastic. So the following day, the following, following Saturday, th- this is relevant to the story. Um, after Family Splash, I go, we're running a bit late, and I, I do a bad thing. I go to McDonald's and I have a Big Mac, a large fries, and a large strawberry. It was the milkshake that did it. The large strawberry milkshake. Okay? So that's, that's relevant to what happens next. We arrive at half past three. I've got McDonald's inside me, okay? And as we arrive, his wife opens the door and says, Welcome, let's all sit down and have dinner. And think go, oh, if your Kurdistani dinner is at 3.30. You see, I thought the invitation was come over at 3.30 and later on at some unspecified time in the evening we will have dinner. But no, the invitation actually was come at 3.30 for dinner. And so we're all sitting down and she brings in all these plates of food that she's been cooking all week. The whole of Kurdistan is coming in like this. One after another. One after another. And then they do this thing where they, they can't start until I start eating. So they're literally, they're standing there. I mean, even my wife and kids can't stand. They're waiting for me to start. And I remember that verse in the Bible that says, eat whatever is set before you. And I cannot quite bring myself to tell them that I've got Ronald McDonald inside me. And so, yeah, and I remember that, eat whatever is set before you. I remember that time was a new Christian where I promised I would obey every command in the gospel. Eat whatever is set before you. And so I just eat what I've never felt so bloated in all my life. So I'm sort of passing in and out of consciousness, I've got so much food inside me. And as this sort of weird experience is my, physically I'm expanding as I'm in his his flat, he says to me that he's sort of had this profound intellectual rejection of it. I've never heard anyone who's so adamantly against Islam than than this guy. But he's got nothing to put in his place. He's got a void, so he doesn't know what to tell Lara, his daughter, like what am I? Am I a Christian? Am I a Muslim? He says, well I don't know, You, you know, he, he, he just doesn't, so he's searching. And then at the end, we get up. I mean, my wife gets up. I'm just about get up. And then we go and stand in the hallway. And as we're saying goodbye, he says these words. We want to be with you. We want you to be our friends. And I was deeply moved. And as I stood there in Salah's flat, so bloated, <laughs> I thought, you know what? I'm alive for a reason. There's a purpose to my life. Because actually all I did was agree to go to the school fundraising multicultural evening. But God brought to me somebody who he knew was spiritually open and spiritually searching. Somebody who I can now invite to church on a Sunday. At the gym, my... I need to go to the gym after this episode. At the gym, uh, my non-Christian friend Chris, he says to me, um, Adrian, what have you been doing this week? I say, Chris, I've been preparing a talk to help Christians reach unconvinced seekers with the good news about Jesus. He said, Adrian, can I give you some advice? I said, yeah. He said, Adrian, tell them not to say the good book says this and the good book says that. I said, why? He said, Chris said, because people like me, Adrian, are quite cynical about religion. I said, Chris, most people I meet are turned off by religion. But Chris, most people I meet are positive about relationships. Most people I meet, Chris, are cynical about religion, but they feel positive towards Jesus as a person. I said, Chris, most people I meet have a high opinion of Jesus as a person. I said, Chris, the great thing is that what's on offer is a relationship with Jesus that goes on forever. He says, oh. He says, I can see why that could be appealing. I said, Chris, do you believe in God? He said, that depends on where I am. He said, sometimes I think there must be a higher power. Sometimes I think there must be something. I said, why do you think that? He said, because when I get out of the city on my bike... As I'm cycling through the countryside, I look at nature around me. I cannot bring myself to believe that it's all just a total accident. And then I asked my favorite question. I said, Chris, do you believe that you're alive for a reason? He said, yes, but I've absolutely no idea what it is. And I felt privileged. I felt honored to be in the room. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. What an amazing truth about you. You might want to just enjoy thinking for a moment about being a British ambassador. Julia's sister has Uh, got a friend who's recently been appointed as a British ambassador. And after they would said yes, they were amazed to discover how good the package was. They were told, first of all, they were allowed to rent out their house in the UK and then live abroad in the British ambassador's house completely rent-free. Then they discovered that they would be given a staff to support them and that they'd have an expenses account. Then they were told they would be given a number plate whereby they could park anywhere they wanted in the entire country in the certain knowledge of never getting a parking ticket. Then, I mean, they're sitting down thinking this is almost too good to be true. And then they realize really their job was that they were being paid to go to parties. I mean, this is fantastic. Now, why do they get all these perks? Because the British government is on their side. Oh, worried about relocating to a foreign country? Worried about finding a removal firm? Don't worry, we'll sort it out. Oh, you've got kids. Worried about finding a school? Don't worry, we'll sort it all out. It's all sorted. Folks, you have been appointed as an ambassador for Christ. And God is on your side. And when you take up your new role, you'll be amazed at how All the resources of heaven have been placed at your disposal. God is going to back you up. And you'll be amazed to see how much the Holy Spirit will help you. Third thing this morning, you'll see yourself making a difference. Now you love this. You love it when the God of the the invisible God of the Bible comes down and works in Sheffield today through you. You love that. And it's as we go. That Jesus says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. The apostle Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus said of himself, look, I have come to seek and to save the lost. Now, we need to remember Jesus made a conscious, deliberate decision to hang out with non-believing people. His reputation was, oh yeah, we've heard about that Jesus of Nazareth. He's a wine-bibber. He's a glutton and a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Jesus made a habit of spending time deliberately with irreligious people. So as soon as we start even praying for that skeptical Person Or that skeptical friend. We are actually pointing ourselves in the same direction that Jesus pointed himself. We're lining ourselves up with the same direction that Jesus lined himself up with. As we prioritize unconvinced people. All the resources of heaven swing in behind us. And God is cheering us on. It's just as clear in John twenty twenty one 21. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Now I find that. Most Christians have no problem believing that the Father sent the Son. I mean, once you become a Christian, it's a relatively easy thing to think that God the Father sent Jesus the Son. But what is a possibly revolutionary thought is to think that in the same way as the Father sent the Son, Jesus is now sending you. I mean, how cool is that? Into the world. It's the same thing in John 17, 18. When we overhear Jesus praying for you. Jesus says, as you've sent me into the world, I have sent them Into the world. In the same way. And to the same extent that the Father has sent the Son. In the same way Jesus is sending you into your friendship circle of non-Christians. Into your circle of work colleagues. Into your family or wherever it is that you're connected to people. Who are not yet Christians. As much as the Father was with Jesus. The Father is now with you. Fourth benefit. You'll become a stronger person. With a fuller understanding of christ i pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in christ now the reality is it's through sharing our faith that we become convinced that christianity is true truth and there are two reasons one is experiential one is intellectual first the experiential one time I was out walking and I was, it just happened that I was praying for a, a, this bloke who lives in our road, a neighbor, and we're, we're not actually in our road, this is some other little way away, about half a mile away. As I'm walking along praying for him, this man and his wife walk around the corner and we literally bump into each other. And the moment this happens, she says, his wife says, oh, it's really funny we should bump into you. I said, why is that? Because only yesterday, she says... I was thinking, you and my husband, I mean, standing right there, this bloke. you and my husband, you should spend more time together. (laughs) Now, of course, immediately, I think, oh, wow, I pray for this to happen, and then it does happen. So I have a heightened sense of awareness of the reality of God in my mind. I mean, same is true of you. Let's imagine you've worked with Sally for two years. You've never had any spiritual conversation with Sally. But you're praying for a chance to talk to her as something about your faith or the reality of God in your life. You have lunch with Sally. During the lunch, she does connect. She does pick up on some kind of spiritual conversation. Then you think, oh wow, only yesterday I was praying for this to happen and now it has. You see, you have a, a heightened sense of the reality Of God in your mind. You're more conscious that God is real. You know that God is real. But the the reality of it has been heightened in your awareness. So firstly experientially. But secondly in terms of intellectually. Your your awareness is heightened simply. Because when you do talk to Sally. What does she actually say? She raises an objection. Sally says look you know. I'm not sure I can believe all this stuff. Because dot, dot 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 dot. And guess what? When you hear this objection you think. I don't know what to say. Just like me with Simon, I don't know what to say. So what do you do in that situation? We've all been there. What do you say? Here's what you can say. You can say, you know what, Sally? That is a really good question. And I've often wondered that myself. In fact, it's such a good set question that I want to give you a decent answer if I can. I don't have a good answer for your question right now. And I realize that might be a bit of a disappointment. But you know what I'm going to do for the next, if we could meet up maybe in a couple of weeks time, Over the next two weeks, I'm going to ask some of my Christian friends. I'm going to have a look at some different resources. I might look at a couple of books. I'm going to come back and Sally, I'm hoping in two weeks' time, if we have a conversation again, I'll be able to say something vaguely sensible and vaguely reasonable in answer to your question. And so that process, my point is this, that process of those two weeks of asking your Christian friends... That process of going on the internet and typing away, of listening to a couple of talks, or maybe looking up in a book, or asking one of the leaders at your church, that process of finding a response for Sally's question, that's the thing that strengthens you. That's the thing that makes you realize that it's not just something you believe or something that you feel. It's not just simply something you were brought up with. No, the evidential basis for Christianity is extremely strong. It's through doing this we realize how firm a foundation we've actually got. It really is true. It's not just that I happen to believe it; or I happen to live in this part of the world. No, it's really true. Woohoo! It's true, and that compels you, propels you forward. Fifth and final benefit this morning is that you'll become more like Jesus. For example, more like Jesus, the storyteller. Mm. For example, Jesus drew people to God. By telling stories, yeah? So as Jesus makes you increasingly more like him, you will increasingly get more and more pleasure through becoming a storyteller. What do I mean? Well, think of some of the happiest memories of your life. I bet some of the happiest memories of your life were that time that you sat with your friend or a group of old friends and you told stories from years ago and you all laughed out loud. Those were the good old days, yeah? Those are the people you'd love to see again, that crowd. Tonight, somewhere in Sheffield, three guys sit in the corner, or three girls sit in the corner of a pub for three hours. They get drinks, they talk, they talk, they talk. What are they talking about? They're telling stories. Even stories they've heard many times before. If you could record their conversation, they're telling stories to each other. One of the most amazing things about the last five or ten years has been the rise of the comedians. It's amazing to think how much money people will spend just to go into a massive stadium or theater and see one man stand on a platform and all he'll do for an hour and a half is tell stories and they all go home and they think it's fantastic. Storytelling. Who was Jesus? Jesus was a storyteller. What did Jesus do? Yes, he healed the sick, but he was a traveling itinerant storyteller. He told stories. And people love to listen to his stories. The common people heard him gladly. They said, oh yeah, we love that Jesus guy. And the other teachers, they're a bit boring. That, his stories are great. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, looking forward to hearing Let's all go. Hey, why don't we all go and hear Jesus? Because the common people heard him gladly. No, you're already a storyteller. This is why it's so good. If you had a blank piece of paper now, if you had no distractions at all for 30 minutes and you had a pen... You could think now of three or four stories, maybe about your dad or your mom or your brother or your sister or something that happened when you were younger. And one of those four stories is a laugh-out-loud funny story. yeah. And you could spend maybe another ten minutes, and I bet you could find a way of making one of those three or four stories a story that could illustrate some aspect of the Christian faith. And you might hear that and say... Okay, let's say I accept that. Let's say I could come up with a funny story. I think probably I can manage that. Adrian, here's the bit you're missing. I don't have a testimony. I don't have like a before I became a Christian testimony because I was eight years old. You might say, when I gave my life to Christ and I was raised in a Christian home. So you're saying, well, look, I don't know how some people, surely you and I meet Christians and they've got like a dramatic before and after story. So you might say to me, well, Adrian, I haven't got a before story. Like some people say, you know, for their before, they'll say something like this. They'll say, dude, I had a thousand dollar a day crack cocaine habit. And I was raised in the ghetto. And my life was a blur of gang violence. And I was being chased by the feds. Within one night in prison, gee! Now you can't say that. You can't say that because it's not true. Because the truth is that before you became a Christian at the age of seven, you went to a Church of England primary school in Guildford. Now listen, my wife, Julia, is the most effective personal evangelist that I know. My wife, Julia, has led more of her friends to Christ than anyone else I know. Yet, Julia grew up in a loving Christian family. She, of all people, could say, I don't really have a testimony. So what does she say? Does she make one up? Does she say, yeah, yeah, I was abandoned by my parents at birth. And I was raised by a pack of wolves. And it was when I was running with the wolves, that's when I first learned to hunt and kill with my bare hands. And in fact, that was around the time that I first discovered voodoo. No, she doesn't say that. (laughs) Julia didn't grow up in the Bronx. She never saw action in Vietnam. Before Julia came to Christ, she went to Croydon High School for girls. And about the most rebellious thing that my wife has ever done was once when she handed in her Latin homework late. So what is her 45-second faith story? Here's what she says. I've written it down because she wrote it down. As a child, I worried a lot. Even though I had nothing to worry about, like many people, I was a born worrier. My parents brought me up to believe the Bible. I became a Christian age 12. I was baptized age 13. But when I was 17 years old, I got glandular fever and I missed a lot of school. I could have got really worried. But I felt God's presence and I learned not to get worried about things. I had this amazing sense... Of peace. I went to university. I could easily have turned my back on Jesus. But I found that I didn't want to. God had done something real in my life. I was a born warrior, But God gave me peace. That's what she says. That's it. Okay. So very quickly. What will happen on the 25th of November? In a month's time at 3 o'clock. What will actually happen here on that occasion? Well, We'll start off with sung worship. We'll have some songs at the start. And then I'll come up and I will tell a story about someone who's been physically healed recently. And then I'll offer a prayer for anyone here on that occasion who has a physical need in terms of illness, sickness, disease or injury. Some of you will have been at the North event in August and you will have seen me pray a prayer like this. I'll be doing exactly the same sort of thing. Praying a prayer for everybody. Nobody needs to move anywhere. I'll pray for people where they are. And then, after that, I will give an opportunity for anyone who has not been healed to come to the front right here, and we will make sure that everybody who has a physical need is prayed for one-on-one by a Christian from City Church Sheffield, okay? Now, you might say, okay, well, you know, you, you, you're going for this guest event or this event that's focused towards those who aren't yet Christians. Why include healing? I mean, you don't have to put healing in the mix. Why would you go for healing? Well, A number of reasons, I suppose. One reason would be that one of actually the main ways that Jesus showed God's love and compassion for people was by healing the sick. And actually, the first Christians, again for them, one of the main ways they showed God's love and compassion for people was by healing the sick. So it would certainly be a biblical thing to include in an event like this. And second reason is because this isn't an exaggeration. There are literally... Hundreds of people in Sheffield who if they were to receive an invitation to an event like this, they would be genuinely grateful and there are many who would seriously consider coming and there'll be many who would come. Why? Because they have a physical need. They actually have got a physical need. And they would actually quite like some genuine, sincere Christians to pray for them in the name of Jesus. They would actually appreciate Those five or six minutes when a couple of really nice people who are for them and want the best for them Pray for them in the name of jesus and stand with them in the suffering that they're going through They think that would be great So it seems sensible seeing as jesus does heal today to give people who'd like to have the opportunity the chance to receive prayer Okay Fair enough Why pray for the sick before the sermon? I mean you could do the talk on the way home you could do that that that's obviously the title of your talk you could do the talk finish the meeting have tea and coffee and then people could come and be prayed for afterwards wouldn't that be just as good maybe it would be just as good so why pray for the sick during the worship before the preach again one reason could be because it does seem to be something that happened in the New Testament often in the Gospels you'll see Jesus initiating a healing and then we'll teach off the back of it and In the book of Acts, there are occasions when people will be listening and then somebody's healed and then they really listen and they kind of lean in and they want to hear what's this all about. So the healing kind of heightens people's interest and expectancy and they pay much more close attention to what's being said about Jesus the healer. I've done many of these kind of events. Often I've found I'll be... Praying for people at the start in a kind of a, like a blanket prayer. And I'll say, hey, if anybody's healed, just raise your hand. And there'll be two or three hands and two or three people will come up. And I'll give them the microphone. This has happened many times. I'll say, hi, what's your name? And what was the problem that you had? And what's the situation now? And they'll tell how they were healed. Like in a fairly confident, impressive way. And everybody's kind of clapping and positive about it all. And I'll think, oh, well, you know, they spoke really well. Maybe they're like one of the leaders. Or maybe they're even one of the elders in the church, but I haven't met them before. And then, later on, I'll be doing the evangelistic sermon. I'll say, I'll give an invitation for people to respond to become Christians. And the same person will raise their hand and come to the front to become a Christian. I think, oh, obviously, he's not one of the elders in the church. (laughs) Obviously, he's somebody who's new. Often, I'll find that. Why? Because it's the new people who are there for the first time. Often, they are the ones who are healed. Which is kind of what you'd expect if that was one of the reasons why Jesus healed people in the first place. To show the kingdom of God and God's love to people who haven't yet experienced him. So often we'll find it's those kind of people who will be healed. And therefore, if you've been healed in the worship, you are going to be listening to the sermon in a completely different way. If you're not yet a Christian from the way you would be otherwise. If you've, if, like, last, last Sunday, there were two people who were healed who both have had a 14-year problem, a struggle for 14 years. It came to an end. Those folks, when the sermon comes, are absolutely zoned in. You know, I'm going to focus on what you're saying about this Jesus because I've just experienced healing. So there's got to be something going on here. Two more questions. Adrian, this is all well and good. What about those who aren't healed? Hey, isn't that a really good question? Well, it is, isn't it? It's a massive question. This is a huge issue for us. In fact, this is such a huge issue that, personally speaking, for the first 15 years of my Christian life, I hardly ever prayed for people to be healed physically. For this very reason. I didn't want to raise their expectations only for them to be dashed. I didn't want to have my own expectations raised for my own expectations. I didn't want them to go away disappointed and me to go away disappointed. So I thought, hey, we can avoid all the disappointment by not praying for the sick at all. So I had 15 years of not praying for anybody to be healed. And I could carry on. There's a lot of other, you can still still preach the good news, still preach the gospel. You know, it's, it's all fine. But you know what? In recent years, since I started to pray for the sick, I discovered something which surprised me. And what I discovered is that when people do come forward for the one-on-one prayer, and there will be people on the 25th of November just standing around this area here on this blue carpet, that even if they don't have their physical problem resolved by the time they get back to their chair, they actually really appreciate that in their busy lives, these two people that maybe they didn't even know took the time to stand with them. And here's another thing that's really surprised me, because this is not what you'd expect in our culture. They appreciate the physical touch. You know how Jesus healed through, sometimes he healed through the laying on of hands or Jesus touched people. Even that, somehow God uses that as an expression of concern. Why? Because there's not a lot of tactile, this is Britain, there's not a lot of tactile stuff going on. And people appreciate the fact that somebody stood with them, prayed with them, showed genuine concern, and they think, wow, that's amazing. You know, I was able to come along. They showed genuine concern. They prayed about the situation. They stood with me. I feel better as a result. And people genuinely appreciate that. And I want to give people that opportunity. Final thing that will happen on this, the 25th of uh, November is that we will do, uh, I'll do at the end, uh, an evangelistic talk. This will explain the gospel. I will try my best, folks, to make it interesting, engaging, humorous. My whole goal is that every single person's attention will be held through the entire message, that everybody will not just think that I believe Christianity is relevant, but that actually feel like, oh, I did understand what was being said. I can see how that might be relevant to my life. And at the end of that time, I will give an invitation to respond. Now, here's how I'm going to do it. I will say okay i 'm going to pray a short prayer, and if you want to make that prayer your prayer, raise your hand, and then, if you have raised your hand i 'll ask people to come to the front because we 'd love to pray with you if you 'd like us to and I will tell people at the very start of the talk that is exactly how we 're going to end, so all through the time i 'm speaking, everybody will know there 'll be a thirty second prayer at the end it 's going to be a response prayer i 'm going to be asked if I want you to, to raise my hand then i 'll be asked to come to the front so everybody will know exactly what to expect folks. I want to say to you guys today, I'm going to try my best and I am confident that it won't be a cringeworthy experience. That this event, if you bring your friend, you will not be with your head in your hands and you're pusing it. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I brought so and so. You're not going to be dying a death and like avoiding them in the road for the next two years and kind of sending them massive Christmas presents to try and get their favor back. It's not going to be like that, okay? So it's going to be okay. It won't be cringeworthy. It won't be awful. You won't be dying a death. No, I think that your relationship with your friend will go up a level. It will not be a bad experience for your friend. If you invite them, it'll be a good experience. Fantastic. Maybe the band would like to come and join me. I'm going to mention six quick possible next steps for you as I close. Six things you could do in the next four weeks, and you'll be pleased to know several of these don't involve talking to anyone, okay? You can just do them on your own, but it could help. First thing you could do on your own doesn't involve talking to anyone. You could do a little task where you get a blank piece of paper and you could write down your faith story in a 100 words. I read you my wife's 45 second faith story earlier. Now, you don't have to talk to anybody. You could do this on your own. Better still, you could do it with a Christian friend or better still, in your small group. Just write it out. Why is that a good thing to do? Because for the next four weeks, you're going to be praying, Lord, I don't have anybody that I... To be honest right now, I don't think I'm going to be inviting anyone on the 25th of November, but God, you're real, and I know that we should reach people for you, and I know that you're a wonderful God. So when you've just, the day before, written out your faith story... Then if somebody does ask you a question, you've, you're ready to go because only yesterday you wrote it out. Maybe do it with some friends. You can pass them around. And when you pass them around, your friend will say to you, oh, look, if I were you, I wouldn't go in on that angle. I talk about that other thing you told us about at small group last week. Write about that. And you think, oh, yeah, that'd be much better. And so you write that down and eventually you get it down. Second thing you could do. What if you're thinking, okay, look, I don't really know anyone. In Sheffield, who's not a Christian, you know, maybe uh, you don't feel you've really got anyone you're connected to. Well, here's what you can do again. Take a blank piece of paper and write down on this piece of paper some headings, work, family, school, neighbors, other. And then under those headings, take two or three minutes, just write down the names of every single person who you know in Sheffield who doesn't know Jesus yet. Yeah, but they're not close friends. Don't worry about that. Just write down their names. So anyone you know who, who's not yet a Christian who lives in this city, just write their names down on the piece of paper. What's the point of that? The point of that is at the end of those two or three minutes, you no longer think, I don't know anyone. Now The issue is you do know people. You might not know them well enough to invite along to this in four weeks' time, but you do know people. Adrian, I did the brainstorm diagram. I did the two or three minutes. There are only two names because I've only moved to Sheffield two weeks ago and I work for a Christian charity. Okay, here's what you do. What you do in that situation is what you did last year. You say, okay, what do you enjoy doing? What do you mean? What do you, what you enjoy doing? Do you like basketball, basket weaving, rollerblading? Do you like books, book clubs, films? What is it you love doing? And you say, oh, uh, I like fishing. Okay, you can go on a website or motorbike maintenance or whatever it is. You can go on the internet tonight and find people who live near you who love doing what you do And you can have a shared interest, you can get to know them, and who knows, maybe in the future you could invite them along for something like this. couple more things and I'm done. Ask God in prayer about our fear of offending our friend. There will be, I'm going to guess, 25% of people in this room right now who are thinking, actually, I could invite someone. But you know what? I don't know how it's going to go. And I don't know whether our relationship's going to go backwards or forwards through me suddenly inviting them to this thing. Well, here's what you can do: you can pray about it. One of the most famous evangelistic books ever was written by Rebecca Manley Pippert. It's called Out of the Salt Shaker, and it starts with her in exactly your situation. We've all been there in this situation, and she's with her friend Mary, and she thinks, "Oh, what am I going to do if I invite Mary? What's going to happen?" And so. Here's what she does to resolve the situation. This is how the book, the most famous book on conversational friendship evangelism ever starts with this illustration. She says, what I did was this. She says to Mary, Mary, you probably have some idea of how much I would love you to have the same experience of coming to know Christ that I have had. But Mary, could you please do me a favor? I really need you to do me a favor. Mary, if I ever come on too strong, if I ever give you cause for offense unnecessarily... If I'm ever too over the top, Mary, could you do me a favor? Could you just tell me? And then I'll know. And of course, when Mary hears this, she thinks, yes, I now know that my mega keen Christian friend Becky is not going to pin me against the wall and give me a hard time because she's got some self-awareness. She just confessed that she does have self-awareness. And plus, Becky's thinking, this is really good because now I can carry on talking freely to my friend Mary. And if I'm coming on too strong and if I'm blowing it, she's going to tell me. It's a win-win. So you can pray, just like Becky did, and that could be a way forward for you. Remember, penultimately, in every crowd of 100 people, one person in that crowd is thinking there's got to be more to life than this. And finally and lastly, whatever else you do, even if you don't invite anyone to this guest service, take some of these, take a fistful of them as you leave in the foyer, as you go today. Why? Because you can use these in ways that you probably never thought. Well, here's what you could do. You could take two to work. And you say, Adrian, you don't understand. There is absolutely no way that realistically I'm going to be inviting anyone from work to this. Okay? Fair enough. Don't invite anyone. Not a problem at all. Just bring two and leave them on your desk if you have a desk. And then maybe somebody in the next four weeks will come over to your desk and they'll say, oh what's the way home? What's that? And you can tell them, you know, seeing as they ask, you can tell them what it is. Or maybe they'll come to your desk and say, oh, do you go to church? My sister goes to church. And you, know, you never knew this person somewhere else in the department, and all of a sudden you're in the conversation. Or keep them by the door at home, and maybe someone will, you'll buy something off the internet, somebody will deliver something to your door, and you might say, Adrian, you, you don't know me. I'm not the sort of person that would give an invitation to a Christian event a complete stranger who's delivering something and I'm signing for it at the door. You don't have to. Just leave them by the door for all you know that person that the previous day could have been invited along to this event by their friend who is a member of this church and then the next day they see the same invitation in your house and they drive away thinking maybe someone's trying to tell me something. Yeah? That's what God does because God has determined the exact times and places where people should live. And he's done it all so that men would reach out to him And that they might find him. And there are hundreds of thousands of people that are going to be saved all over the world before Jesus returns. And one day, every tribe, nation, and tongue will hear and every single language group, every single ethnic group will be represented around the throne of God. Do you believe it? Let's stand, shall we? Father, we just thank you for...